Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper on June 9th, 2019. A beautiful, beautiful day. Mm-hmm. We had a lovely bike ride. Uh, there's a breezes blowing. It's kind of idyllic. Yes, the Mets won. Yeah. And the Mets won. Who, yeah. who was pitching? Syndergaard had a fantastic game. Noah Syndergaard, he's back. Thor. Finally. Finally, Finally. yes. Thor is back. All right. Glad to hear that. Okay. And we have Granger joining us because you and uh, Granger have been to a play. Right. We're going to get to that in just a second, but it is. We have other stuff to talk about. Well, we have to, first, we should note that it is Tony night. We're not going to get into picking Tonys because by the time anyone hears this, the Tony Awards will be given. And no one will really benefit from hearing the winners in advance. So it's not about picking the Tonys anyway. Sometimes it's a pretty fun show, right? Right. And it's being hosted by James Corden. And he's pretty funny, usually, and creative. Mm -hmm. He has a great creative team. Yeah. Uh, So uh, it might be fun to watch. Yeah. But if it's not, we can just switch to the hockey game. That's true. That's that's uh, true. It's a win-win for us. Yeah. I mean, at the times... Had a couple of theater things. Uh, one was interesting and one uh, wasn't. They had, they had something which looked promising, which was some interviews from the 1969 Tonys. They kind of dribbled out. There were a couple of funny stories about, um, you know, 1776. But, uh, you know, people don't remember that too well. They asked Ansel Lansbury about the ceremony in 1969. And she said, uh, I don't remember. it. It's a long time ago. Well, most of the people they were interviewing yeah. by now would be a great deal older. Yeah. And, She's uh, in her 90s. She yeah, doesn't remember. Yeah. She said, I can't remember what I ate for breakfast. But you're, you're right. The William Daniels thing was funny because he uh, dropped out of the running. Yeah. Um, he dropped. Well, he wasn't, didn't drop out of the running. He was nominated for Best Featured Actor as opposed to Best Actor. And uh, he was disturbed that... Uh, in retrospect, that he was not nominated for Best Actor, and he should have been. Because Best Feature is like supporting, and as he put it to the producer at the time, who am I supporting? Uh, he played John Adams. That was the main character in 1776. He wasn't supporting anyone. The theory being that it was kind of an ensemble right. production and uh, hard to single out one person not, as not really. a star. Not really. But anyway, that was his point. But uh, the, the thing in the, article, in the Times was interesting was they had something about dressing rooms, which was neither here nor there, but it was a bunch of photos of Broadway stars in their dressing rooms over the years. Yes, they and, had a special section, yeah. black and white mm. photographs uh, from people a long time ago, Helen Hayes, and uh, people, you know, in current productions, Audra McDonald. Right. But and I, a lot of them were fun to see. Well, I like the ones in the middle. Helen Hayes is before my time, although I understand you were a big enthusiast. And the more recent photographs are just recent photographs. But the ones in the middle... The classics, uh, the Frank Langella photograph as he's uh, in his, his uh, dressing room getting ready to play Dracula. And he's, and he's a young guy. He's like 22. In skinny jeans. He looks like he's 14. Jeans, sure. Yeah. He's, but but, and, but yeah. I do remember him like that. And uh, and there was a great photo of Jerry Orbach when he was uh, performing in Promises, Promises with two of his buddies. And his two buzzy buddies are uh, Ben Gazzara, who was a great actor, who passed away, and George Siegel, who you can see now in the Goldbergs but was a great actor at the time. And the three of them in tuxedos, very young guys, laughing with cigars and, and whatever. It's a great photograph. Yeah. So uh, that was fun. Yeah. So uh, 
so if you have the times and you didn't... Uh, yeah, take a look at that section. There's some great section. photos there. Okay. So we were at the movies. We're reporting from the movies. And well, I, we should really do the play first. Yeah, it's up the to you. The play was Thursday. The All movies right. was... All right, so the yeah. play. We'll do the play first. So Granger and I saw All My Sons. Here he is, Granger on All My Sons. Granger, your yes. son. Granger, my son. To, to see, see All My Sons. Mom, it was be good... Uh, Father-son bonding experience since Father's Day is coming out. But I didn't have all my sons. I just had one of them. But well, that's probably the case in the play as well. Yes. To get too many spoilers. Yeah, that's but, true. Um, Arthur Miller play. Yes. Yes. And this is one of his first successful plays. Right. Yeah. His yeah. first successful play. You're right. Yeah. And this is based on a true story. Right. These guys. Well, I was thinking, yeah, you know, it had to be based on a true story. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Was it yeah. his, his? No, no. Well, Granger looked up. Tell us, Granger. What's it based on? Yes, yeah, so there's a company in Ohio which uh, passed on some defective gear that was used by aircraft. Eventually, some officers in the Air Force uh, who were, you know, involved with this company were convicted. Of, uh, right. So they World said, War II? Yeah. Right. So they use substandard parts in building aircraft, and the aircraft go out uh, to engage in wartime, and they fail, and they crash, and the pilots die. And um, and the play dramatizes it uh, as 21 pilots die. Apparently, there's a group called 21 Pilots that was popular a few years ago. I just looked it up, uh, a rock group, and that's why it's called 21 Pilots. But in any event... Um, the story is a dramatic uh, situation involving the guy who was responsible for the aircraft and his family and uh, all kinds of drama about that, including, um, you know, how whether he's really responsible, whether his partner's responsible, how the people responsible should be punished and the like. Uh, and I found that only mildly interesting. And you, yeah. Granger? It starts with... Uh... The premise of, you know, life returns to normal after wartime, right. people have been lost, you know, it's unclear how to move on with your lives after those people have been lost, and it's really overtaken by this drama that sort of, you know, tries to link capitalism to people's um, drives for success in, you know, during the war, and complicates the narrative of grief. And, yeah, know, that's, a, that's a good summary. And I think the first part, I thought it was engaging. Yeah. I mean, in the first part... It's very much about uh, Annette Benning, who's the mother, and how is she going to move on from the fact that one of her sons was missing in action, and she can't accept that, in fact, he must be dead, even though he's gone three years. And that uh, was very engaging, and she's extremely good. And the second part, uh, which, as you say, overtook the first, was about uh, who's responsible for shipping the substandard parts, and, and how, how, what do we think of this person? How big a villain is he? Uh, and uh, that was a little less engaging. That was Tracy Letts was the father, who's a wonderful actor and a great playwright. That's the guy who wrote August Osage County. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Ben Walker is the son. You mentioned one son is there. Mm -hmm. And I will say that uh, Annette Benning is nominated for Tony. The play is nominated for Tony for Best Revival. And Ben Walker is uh, nominated for Tony as supporting featured actor. And I thought he wasn't good. I thought he was up and down. I think that he had uh, a lot of work to do in the second act and didn't really... Part of that is like because the writing's not as good there. Or yeah. Yeah, I think part of what happens is that Miller is a little bit younger in writing this play and he's going for the most dramatic right. events and results possible. And that's too much for this guy you know, to act out. That's understandable. It's not, it loses the subtlety of the first act. Yeah, no, that's exactly, yeah, I think you, you put your finger on two things. Number one is, written in 1947, it's just after the war and people are seeing things 
differently than they do now. I mean, it's dated. I mean, people have a lot to say and think about World War II, but no one's really going over who, who sent defective parts. That's really not what the war leaves us with 50, 60, 70 years later. But beyond that, uh, Miller's um, just a struggling playwright. He's struggling hard to write a successful play. Uh, he wants to be popular. It's like a TV show. And it, has, it doesn't have anything like the depth of his later parts. And it, he's probably he's infusing us with this angst from the very beginning. And there's no arc in it. I mean, this guy is, looks like he's worn out from the first 10 minutes of the play. This poor Ben Walker. And he's overwrought. And he's got no place to go. Yeah. So in any event, I, don't, I would not uh, recommend it particularly. If you have tickets, go. But uh, <laughs> I think also if you're a big Death of a Salesman fan, it's interesting no, to see no, this no, 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 in the lead. Yeah, but Death of a Salesman is such a superior play yeah. to this. I mean, you're not you're not going to see this kind of play for the set. There's a great set, you know, for this one. You know, one setting. it's funny you say that because the Times didn't like the set. Really? What they say about? They it? thought it was old fashioned. They wanted something more modern. I don't understand it either. Well, they go more plays than they say. They certainly do. I thought, I thought it was very. Bad. I'll go with you. All right. All right. Thanks. Thank Grinch. you, Grinch. All right. Now, and to the movies. Right. Tamsin and Dan at the movies. We're putting the big graphic up that says Tamsin and Dan at the movies. So who went to a French film? Hmm. Nonfiction. That's and what it's called. It's called nonfiction. Yes. It is a fictional play. Yes. Uh, sort of. Oh, it really well, is. Movie. Yeah. yeah. Fictional movie. And uh, starring Juliette Benouche. Hmm. And it's an Olivier Assayas. Uh, movie and um it was very french very french i mean it was enjoyable it was uh, interesting it was not a great movie uh but it was interesting and it was as you put it extremely french so why do you call it extremely <laughs> french i have my own well, ideas well um i'm just being a little bit snarky but uh it was um you know it took me a while to get into it you know it wasn't as linear you know, as sort of straightforward as most American yeah. movies are crafted. Well, it had no plot at all. Right. Like perhaps it, you might, one of, way of putting it. It jumped around, yeah. and I needed to learn to flow with it. Yeah. Also, it was a complex subject matter to some extent. There were many philosophical discussions of where is publishing and writing going today right are people reading more are they reading less are they writing more are they writing less where are they writing where are they reading um where's you know the future of all this right. uh and it was uh, you know kind of intense discussions among uh you know intelligent people and often in a, in a dinner setting or whatever, mm -hmm. but it was pretty rapid fire. And so even with the benefit of subtitles, it was hard to kind of watch the action and understand the yeah, conversation. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, I was going to joke that I was getting it in the French, but of course I wasn't speaking any French. Um, I, I think that uh, at the end of the day, I mean, you do get into it at a certain point. Oh, it's an interesting, it's, it's, and... a, it's an interesting subject. Yeah. But it, it was, there's a little less to it than meets the eye. And I thought the group was a little pseudo-intellectual as opposed to intellectual. But it was maybe that was the way it was set up. Because yeah. there were characters yeah. in the movie. Yeah. They were trying to give more depth to what they had to say than they actually were offering. I mean, the subject that they were getting to was sort of wrapped up uh, in technology. You know, how people read today versus how they read before. And, you know, when you get your information by Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. 
But it's not really a technological discussion. It's a debate that's been going on for a long time. There's the old Jay Leno joke where he said he gets in front of an audience 25 years ago. And it's nice show. And he says, I just saw a survey that says that the most read publication in the country is TV Guide. And the question for us is, is that reading? Mm-hmm. Well, that's the same question. Uh, what passes for reading these days? Is it little snippets, little bits of information, two-sentence movie reviews? Or is reading something that's deeper? Where is the novel at this point? Is there such a thing as the novel? And that is a question which I think is worthy of discussion and was discussed. I don't think the technology adds that much to discussion because nobody in that movie really had anything to offer in terms of real substantive literature. Even the so-called, the so-called, the novelist was writing kind of pretty superficial everything that happened in his life and, and making believe that it happened fictionally. He was just reporting his life. No one was doing anything that was really intellectual in terms of actual literature. That was completely missing, I thought. Yeah. And, and, and no one seemed highly aware of it. So they were kind of lamenting the idea that tweets are shorter than, than longer sentences, uh, than longer passages. Um, and uh, at the same time, the counter-argument was at least people are writing, even if it's tweets. Uh, but there was nothing, nothing really in anybody's view that approached what you would call real literature. That's absolutely missing entirely. And, and do we yeah, miss it? I guess I don't know. So it was largely about the business of writing, you know, sure. and about the uh, writer's success, the publisher's success. Yeah. Where does publishing go from here? Can this guy make a living? But it was also very French in the sense that there are all kinds of affairs going on. Right. Where you least expect them. Well, you know that is interesting. I they're, they're, yeah, they're hopping into bed with everybody, and but yeah, and then they end at a certain point, and they end sometimes kind of abruptly. And I think that that was you know, in thinking about it in retrospect, the idea that the end of the affair is sort of meant people sorting out how they saw their lives, even even personally and professionally. They were trying to get back on the right track. They were trying to. Like I thought when Julie Binoche ended her affair with a guy who was the writer, I thought she was saying, you know, I'm straightening my life out. I'm quitting the TV show. I'm rededicating myself to my marriage. I'm getting, I'm trying to do something that's more meaningful. I thought it was part of a larger whole. No? Eh, maybe. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. But I will say, yeah. I, I, I do think Julie Binoche was miscast. Yes, she was. She was playing. A, she was supposed to be playing a relatively young mother. Right. And, and she did not look well, relatively she was, young. No, she looked I, like. I mean, she's a fine actress. She's she looked, a wonderful actress. She seemed like a relatively uh, young grandmother. It just seemed a yeah. weird part yeah. for yeah. her. You, you, she, and, they had her young kid run up at one point. And you said, no, but, but that's not your baby. Put that, put that baby down. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it was uh, weird. But she's okay. Julie Binoche. So moving on. Yeah. Right along. Uh, in the well, Street Journal this week, historically speaking, uh, that column by Amanda Foreman is addressing the ancient origins of the vacation. Mm. And uh, she says maybe the Greeks didn't invent vacations, but they perfected the concept because they would have these people would gather um, at various places for, uh, you know, things like the Olympics or other things. religious rituals Mm -hmm. and festivities and uh, they really did perfect uh, having uh, quality amenities and uh, offering things like thermal springs Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, etc at these events and uh, Plato um, one of Plato's dialogues uh, at a certain point attacks basically Socrates for not being a guy who traveled 
at all. He says, you, you know, you've never been to any other city or seen what people do. Um, so there is a value even back then in uh, broadening one's self through uh, travel and vacations. The Romans preferred a resort location with fabulous villas. That's what Pompeii was, uh, oh, really? a place to get out of town and go. They had uh, all kinds of entertainment, mm. uh, etc. There's a famous amphitheater there that had, uh, you know, um, the usual kind of, uh, you know, Roman entertainments, etc. Um, and uh, you remember Hadrian's Villa. He had a fabulous place outside of Roman Tivoli uh, with all kinds of deluxe accommodations. Um, the in medieval times, not such a laugh a minute time for mm. travel. Right. It was really all about the pilgrimage. And of course, Rome was a great place for uh, a um, pilgrimage, but also Santiago de Compostela in northern Spain, where they believed St. James uh, had been buried. And people would walk there. People still do that pilgrimage, actually. Mm -hmm. There are a number of bike trips mm -hmm. taking you there. It sounds a little bit grueling, uh, to be honest. But uh, there were all kinds of souvenirs along the way. And uh, souvenirs that could actually help you get into heaven, mm -hmm. uh, to be precise. Uh, then, after that, we move into the Grand Tour. 17th, 18th, 19th century. The way a young man uh, completes his education, both in terms of... Of culture and sophistication would be to travel to specific sites uh, all over Europe, but um, most importantly, probably Italy. And uh, there were books about exactly where you had to be. You had to have these travel sites, these notches on your you know cultural belt. Mm -hmm. And again, they would bring back uh, souvenirs, perhaps a self-portrait, a it, whether in painting or sculpture, or a, a scene of Venice by Canaletto, uh, etc. And, and then as we get to uh, the, the development of train travel, that really broadens up the possibilities for a broader democracy. And of course, don't forget spa vacations. Those go back to Bath, mm -hmm. uh, you know, even to Roman times, uh, actually, and uh, uh, definitely in the times of Jane Austen, who would uh, would be a frequent visitor. And of course, in our own country, Saratoga Springs mm -hmm. uh, uh, attracted right. quite the crowd in um, as early as 1815. So, uh, you know, vacations have been a thing by 1910. President William Howard Taft actually um, presents to proposes to Congress that all workers be given a paid two to three month vacation. Yeah, well, that doesn't work out. Yeah, Congress doesn't go for that. It, you know, in France. Uh, well, you know, I think later. you know when you say Saratoga, also the idea of it's hot and people want a cooler climb. I mean, that's part of the vacation thing. Well, that's too. the thing. You yeah. know, there were all kinds of you had to get out of the city, yeah, right? And there were all these sort of vacation spots. Right. Um, that actually don't even exist anymore now since we have air conditioning. Yeah, we are it. not so inclined. Well, uh, not you don't have to take that vacation because you can survive. Right, you right. can survive in Washington D.C. in a way but, you could. But it's funny that you go um, these various little sort of vacation ghost towns mm -hmm. uh, that have been repurposed, Lakewood, New Jersey, uh, for example. Oh, we'll get into that another time. Well, that was a vacation. Though? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I know someone from it. Yeah. Um, 
All right. Interesting. All right. The uh, speaking of people about to take a vacation, the NBA is winding up its season. And uh, last week we had we played gone fishing, or maybe it was two weeks ago, perhaps, and one of the teams got knocked out. But in fact, uh, we're down to two teams: it's the Toronto Raptors and the Golden State Warriors. Golden State, huge favorite. Uh, some may recall we predicted here they wouldn't win because of bad karma, and perhaps we're right. Who knows? Usually we're wrong. Uh, but right now, Toronto is leading the series three games to one. And there's a little bit of a focus on a coach there with nobody ever heard of. His name is Nick Nurse. He's the head coach of the Toronto Raptors. I never heard of him. And there's a good reason. It's because he spent most of his career as a coach in the UK. He's an English basketball coach. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah, I'm not making How it up. How can there be such a thing? I don't is know. Is he British originally? Or he just coached in? Uh, now you're asking me a question I don't know the answer to. Uh, I think, yeah, I don't know. He certainly spent most of his life in the UK, and he's uh, done all his, almost all his coaching, a lot of his coaching, in the UK. Uh, a British basketball league team uh, is where he spent most of his coaching life, which he took to the EuroLeague uh, Championship, or close to it, and that was an enormous accomplishment, apparently. Um, the thing about him is that, uh, here's what makes it interesting. Um, because he has such a strange background, that while on the one hand he studied the NBA and the way they played and tried to copy some of the offenses, inevitably with that different level of competition, you do things that you see most often in college or high school. It's not a high level of competition. And that makes him innovative. So in other words, they're playing in the tournament now. Toronto's playing um, Golden State. Golden State has all the injuries. They've got one superstar playing. Everyone else is hurt. That superstar, of course, is Steph Curry. And he, in game, the last game, I guess it was uh, game three, uh, went crazy, scored 47 points. And it looked like he was single-handedly possibly going to win the game for Golden State. And and Nick Nurse had his team come out in the beginning of the second half when the defense called the box and one. And the announcers went crazy, a box and one, a box and one. We never see that in the NBA. Well, I know about a box and one. I've played in a box and one. I've coached a box and one. That's when you do when you're coaching kids. When the other team only has one good player, you set four kids up in a zone, and you have the fifth kid follow the other kid around. So that kid has to deal with his own and the one-on-one -on -one at the same time because you're mm -hmm. only stopping one player. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not an NBA defense because teams have five good players, but in this case, they didn't. So he knew a defense that you wouldn't know as an NBA coach, that no one would have had anything to do with for years and years, but Nick Nurse knew because Nick Nurse has been coaching in Britain, and that helped win that game. And they are one game from the championship with this guy, Nick Nurse, who came from nowhere. So we'll see. Well, that's pretty interesting. That goes back to the, you know, this, again, this idea of the uh, broader range of experience. Yeah. It can change how you look at things. Right. And uh, help you succeed in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Uh, so I um, noticed, and you passed on to me as well, one of these um, belated obituaries. Uh, what are they called? Overlooked No More or something like that in the New York Times. And uh, this one was about Emma Stebbins, mm -hmm. uh, a sculptor who lived from 1815 to 1882. Now, I just actually um, noticed her. And, you know, I might have heard of her before because uh, she has a famous sculpture in Central Park. And, of course, I, I am a fan of Central Park. Park, and that would be the Angel Angel of the Waters uh, in the um, 
big fountain in the park, and it's a sculpture based on the biblical story of an angel who imbues the water, waters of Bethesda with healing powers. Um, and uh, so she's uh, descending to bless the water for healing. And in some ways, it's meant to commemorate the Croton Aqueduct, bringing fresh water to New York City mm-hmm. from upstate. And uh, so, it, but anyway, here's how, why I had heard of her. I was doing the research about the history of burlesque. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, once I start reading about all these women involved in kind of managing and acting in burlesque, I, you know, I started reading about uh, 19th century actresses in general. And uh, these powerhouse names, one of them was Charlotte Cushman, who was an extremely popular actress, actor uh, of the period, who was also famous for trouser roles as well. And she acted in uh, Shakespearean plays and other things in the U.S. and in London. She was also uh, kind of famous for all her love affairs and uh, with a variety of people, some of them very long standing, um, including uh, Matilda Hayes. Uh, and uh, Matilda Hayes, you know, actually sues her for palimony at a certain point. Mm. Yes, yeah. yes, really? and wins. Really? Uh, yes. Um, she, but anyway, they have an intense relationship. And it is broken up by Hayes moving on to a female sculptor. Well, then it seems that uh, Charlotte's got to get her own sculptor. And they're in Rome. And Rome has an expatriate community of of sculptors, including a tight-knit group, uh, a strange sisterhood of American lady sculptors, as Henry James describes it, uh, that includes people like Emma Stebbins. Emma um, is from the U.S. and uh, she actually um, she's born. She's from New York. Her brother is on the committee uh, for statuary, fountains, and architectural structure of Central Park. So that's how she gets the commission. Mm, do I smell nepotism? Maybe, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the um, you know so. I mean, this is a complicated story, but it's so much fun. Uh, somehow, uh, Charlotte gets to know Emma um, and uh, falls in love with her. They become a couple um, lasting through the end of Charlotte's life, mm-hmm. actually. Um, Charlotte is diagnosed with breast cancer. They move back to the U.S. from Rome. Stebbins nurses her until her death, and then she'll die six uh, years later uh, from a lung issue. Uh, so anyway, it's kind, it's an interesting story, no matter how you look at it. But it also remember that uh, the Bethesda Fountain sculpture actually becomes a significant setting in Angels in America. And actually, Tony Kushner, who writes that, does has no idea that uh, this is uh, such a wonderful uh, gay love story uh, about uh, the sculptor of that as well. It gets a terrible review, the sculpture, oh, the when it comes review. out. Yeah. But so the, uh, they, so the image, they mock it, and but the image in Angel in America that I'm thinking with the wing thing that comes yeah, from that. Yeah, that's it. Really, 
Yeah, that's it. And uh, there is some belief that the uh, woman, uh, the uh, the angel, is based on Charlotte Cushman, mm-hmm. uh, which is possible. Mm. But uh, interesting that they're, um, you know, mm. why is there not a movie of these women? I don't know. Uh, Do they just, mention uh, uh, Angels in America in the MSNBC article in the paper? Uh, yes, oh, oh, yes. Okay. Um, but uh, you know, there's so much great back and forth, and uh, you know, even when she's with Stebbins, she falls in love with another young woman, and then to keep that woman in her life, she convinces her to marry her nephew. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's just it's such a fun story and such a you know um, beautiful love story mm-hmm. as well. The commitment all those years, um, it's gotta be. A movie or a miniseries well, or something. Not yet. We'll hold on to the rights. The uh, baseball draft took place. Um, and you hear a little bit less about that because it's a little less scientific than the basketball draft and the football draft, which means that you don't know too much about the people you're drafting in terms of predicting their success. You know something. But uh, there are a lot of people who are picked in later rounds who become superstars. And how do you prove that? Well, the Times put together a pretty interesting chart. And they did it in a very simple way. They listed all the players who played in last year's All-Star game, quite a few, both leagues. And they put listed them in order of their draft number. In other words, the first few in the list were people who were taking number one in the draft, and it worked its way down. So you got three columns. The first column with folks who were taken all in the first round. Second column, folks taken between, like, in the second to the third or fourth round, and the a third column of names of people taken after that, some, you know, the 20th round, the 30th round. And what's interesting is the columns are equal. That there are people, yeah, in the first column who were big stars like uh, Justin Verlander and Bryce Harper. Uh, sure, you have those names, Max Scherzer. They're in the first column. Chris Sale, Mike Trout. So they were drafted high. Very high. Okay. And then you go to the third column and say, you can't match up with that. Well, you kind of can because... You've got names like uh, Jacob DeGrom, Paul Goldschmidt, uh, Matt Kemp, Mookie Betts, uh, Yadira Molina, JT Real Muto, uh, Josh Hader, J.D. Martinez. Uh, you know, I, I know you're not as into baseball as I am, but believe me, those names are just as okay. good as the first common names. how about lowest of the low? The lowest of the low. J.D. Martinez is the lowest guy, in the, and I think he was the MVP in the league last year. Okay. So, um... He was the 611th pick in the 2009 draft. So, you know, who the heck knows? So uh, that's that's always good for a lesser team like the New York Metropolitans. You never know. Jacob DeBrom being the 272nd player taken in the draft in, in 2010. Uh, that would be the eighth round. You never know who you're getting. So you get to read all these stories about guys who are fantastic that we took in the 12th and the 13th round. And we'll see. So you're just, you're just telling me the draft is meaningless? It's not meaningless. It's not meaningless. But it is not. Here's something we should be interested in the baseball draft, except it's meaningless? No, I'm saying that if you have an extremely high level of scouting, you can get talent beyond what your draft status would indicate. Okay. All right. There you go. All right. There you go. Okay. Another baseball story (laughs) to fall asleep to. Really, Daniel? Well, you're going to bicycling, so I don't know what you're bragging about. Well, you know, we had such a nice bike ride yeah. today. Uh, I wore you out. Really I, I wore you out. Okay. 
And also, the bike ride was nice. Oh, 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 man. Go ahead. Daniel, you, you just broke everybody's eardrums. Okay. Okay. Um, anyway, there's a, a, a nice article. First of all, I should say there there is currently, if you're in New York and you're interested in cycling and you're interested in museums, go to the Museum of the City of New York. There's an ongoing exhibition of the history of New York cycling. Yeah, right. But one key group, one key element of New York cycling that they leave out is the group, the the um, Brooklyn Red Caps, which is an African American ah, group Red of Caps. cyclists, yeah, right. and uh, got you know been getting together since the 1970s, mm-hmm. and uh, they meet at Prospect Park and they go on these extraordinary rides to like Philadelphia. Yeah, um, it's crazy. Well, I never and, heard of the Brooklyn Red Caps, but I'm looking at the photo and I was telling you those are real bicycles. Those are real bicycles, yeah. and these guys are intense. Mm. And uh, you know, it takes a while to kind of break into the group. Yeah. Uh, they're not uh, too warm and fuzzy. Uh, they really are very competitive oh, yeah. uh, with each other. And uh, you know, they have various uh, members. They say their membership ranges in age from about 25 to 88. No. Uh, so yeah, that's what they say. I don't believe so, that. So uh, that's kind of fun, and they, you know, I'm not riding to Philadelphia. They have like, real riders 88. who yeah. join them yeah. in their off season, mm-hmm. etc. And they occasionally take young, promising riders under their wing uh, and uh, give them some support. But uh, that is funny. In the course of the article about this group, they mentioned some other African American groups, including a group of women. Uh, five black women who rode from who rode round trip from New York City to Washington in 1928. That must have been quite a trip. That would be a, a tough trip. Oh, especially uh, now. The bicycles weren't as nice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've talked before. Uh, it took a while for them to get to the so-called safety bicycle, where both wheels are the same size. Yeah, and so on. I don't, you know, uh, but uh, and. Um, there's another famous group uh, uh, of black uh, African-American uh, women riders uh, called the L&M uh, Society. Not intensely competitive uh, like the Red Caps. But, uh, so it, it was a fun article um, kind of broadening the scope of who's riding bikes okay. in New York yeah, and the are, camaraderie those are nice bikes. they're in. Yeah. Yeah, that. All right, and you had something about uh, George Washington's mother. Or a book. Yeah, a review of a book, The Widow Washington, by Martha Saxton, who's a historian at Amherst. And it tells about George Washington's mom. And uh, it's interesting from a couple of different viewpoints. First of all, there's some discussion of, uh, you know, what kind of woman was she? Uh, Was she nice or not. Right. And there is some indication that he has very little relationship with her in later years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but the story of her life is, sounds pretty darn um, compelling. First of all, it's overwhelmed with death. And really, when you read about uh, her family, um, and uh, her mother had at least four husbands, uh, not because she wasn't satisfied with them. They would die. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that she herself uh, is left with uh, 
quite a large family. Her, she's married to uh, Augustine Washington, uh, and they have, they're married for 12 years. Then he dies, and she has like uh, an enormous uh, number of kids. Uh, I don't know, like uh, um, five small children, including the 11-year-old George. Okay, tells about her life and how in the early um, in the 18th century, the early 18th century in Virginia. Women actually uh, were encouraged to be physical, were somewhat independent. They had to be uh, because of, uh, you know, being subject to uh, uh, widow. Widowhood, is that what you would call it? Sure. Um, they had to be able to survive. And so it's a much different life than when you think of the constraints of the later mm-hmm. uh, 18th and 19th century and how women were taught to behave. Uh, Saxon even says that uh, the women wore more comfortable clothes. They couldn't be constricted like uh, women are in those Victorian clothes. Mm-hmm. And also um, the, um, what would you call it, inheritance uh, laws or, or practices were much different because, uh, you know, the that British tradition of primogeniture, where you're leaving everything to the eldest son, wasn't really going to work mm-hmm. uh, in the new America. And so that when Washington, when Augustine Washington um, dies, he actually, his uh, will calls for all the property uh, being distributed to the various children, and uh, that uh, she would, uh, his wife, Mary, uh, Washington's, uh, George's mother, would benefit from income generated uh, by those legacies, uh, which is new and different. Anyway, it's it's a slightly different picture, I think, of women and life in Virginia at that time. Nonetheless, it's tough sledding. It's hard reading because, of course, part of the property uh, were enslaved peoples. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but uh, it uh, does give an insight. Most of what he learned about how to command, uh, how to behave, his you know sort of moral structure, he gets from mom. All right. All right. Even though I gotta say Father's Day is coming up, but uh, you know, next Sunday, always happy to you can pay say that to the mothers. Yes, next week you can concentrate on fathers. Um, all right, so finally we have. Um, yeah, actually, I read that piece. I have to say there were a couple of things that are a little less positive about her in the story, but uh, yes, yes, that's true. Especially she, in her old age, she, she was, is very cranky. Yeah, she's, she's a she's cranky. a huge nag in, but, in dealing uh, with George. But again, it's we're it, it's. It's an interesting uh, portrayal yeah, yeah. of life during the I just wanted to give the balanced view. But, uh, Again, the Widow Washington yes. so, by Martha uh, Saxton. So we've been reading a lot about D-Day, and uh, there was an interesting piece. Of, 75th anniversary. Right. And we mentioned this last time, I think, and also that, uh, you know, having been there to yeah. uh, the Omaha Beach, etc., it was really kind of very extremely moving and seeing all this reporting and all these ceremonies brought it back again and again. Well, but I wanted to bring up something particular about film. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
There's an article by Ben Mankiewicz. Ben Mankiewicz is uh, the guy who is on uh, TCM. Yeah, he comes on at the end of the movie and right. explains it to you. Right. He, or tells you the little side The guy side with glasses stories, who says, yeah. uh, tells some little bit about, you know, Catherine Hepburn really didn't like so-and-so, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. Um, and he's well-known, He well, he's got well-known lineage. His, his father uh, was uh, Frank Mankiewicz, who was a screenwriter. Uh, Frank Mankiewicz's brother, uh, Ben's uh, uncle, was also Mankiewicz. I forget his first name, but uh, he actually was the one who wrote, I think, All About Eve. So the Mankiewicz brothers were quite well known, so uh, Ben's been in the industry. But his article is about the fact that his father, Frank, served in the Army and would never talk about his experiences in World War II. And this is something the Times been writing about all week, saying that that's all this greatest generation stuff. But the veterans are famous for not talking about what happened. They're also very gruesome and grisly and whatever, and they can't bring themselves to talk about it. And he says, you know, in, in the article, Ben says, the movies are actually a help in this connection in a lot of ways. And when you talk about our being in Normandy, of course, we saw this amazing film in Normandy. There is a, there is a museum uh, that's set up right by the beach, and you see a 19-minute film or 20-minute film in which you stand up and it's like theater in the round, but it's all newsreels. And it's so evocative and it's so compelling. It knocks you off, knocks your socks off. It's amazing. You know, you hear about, you hear Hitler speaking, you hear Churchill speaking, you see the boots on the ground, you see the, the cornets of war, etc. But the film is so compelling and films can be compelling. What he's saying here is that even though his father could not be brought to talk about the war, generally speaking, his father and others that he's known who's had that experience would sometimes respond to film, would sometimes open up after they saw movies about World War II. When he singles out three, he singles out The Longest Day, was made in 62, a film called uh, Overlord, which I don't know, which was made in the mid-70s and 75, and of course Saving Private Ryan. And he talks about watching Saving Private Ryan with his father and his father opening up about the war mm-hmm. after watching Saving mm-hmm. Private Ryan. And then he, talk, he gives another account in which he showed he watched Saving Private Ryan with a couple of other veterans and he had the same experience. As soon as they saw the film and afterwards they were so overwhelmed with the memories and seeing it in front of them, uh, they started talking about it. And, and, and it just, you know, the f- film, whether it's newsreels, whether it's like newsreels, and I have to say, he points out correctly, Longest Day and Overlord are both shot in black and white because they're like newsreels. That's mm-hmm. the idea. That's mm-hmm. the way mm-hmm. those Uh He says it's just, it shows you how film can move people and affect people and get them to react. I mean, his last paragraph kind of sums it up. He says, on days like D-Day, we naturally call to mind all that was at stake, all the men who gave their lives, as well as uh, their survivors, um, and the granular stories that come out of the movies, the pictures that may have only been, quote, based on a true story, end of quote, but did justice to the essential truth of what happened on the ground, the ones that got guys like my dad to finally talk. Um I think that's probably true. Uh, in, in any event, uh, yeah, I, I really started thinking first and foremost about that film we saw in Normandy. It was amazingly affecting. Mm-hmm. And uh, that one was newsreel photography. But, uh, you know, when you think about it, you can talk about things, and uh, but without the pictures, without the moving pictures, um, it doesn't have the same effect. But when you see it, and it's so stark and it's so real and it's so harrowing, uh, there's no substitute for that. Yeah. 
All right. So in any event, uh, that's that's where we'll leave you uh, this week and next weekend. Next weekend. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a festive weekend, but uh, at some point, Tamson Granger and Dan Abuhoff will be back. On Father's Day. So start preparing for that. See you next week.